Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and start our Bible study, 2 Kings chapter 12. 2 Kings chapter 12. For those of you who haven't been here since last year, that could just be two weeks. You might have taken a vacation. And verse 10. And it was so... When they saw that there was much money in the chest, that the king's scribe and the high priest came up, and they put up in bags and told the money that was found in the house of the Lord. In verse 10, the word told was the last thing we studied last week. And we learned that it means to reckon, which is to number. It's an accounting term. And it pertained to the accountability that was now being exercised in the collection of the offerings from the people. Now, had the priests before, when they took the collections from their acquaintances, had there been a receipt given, a log made of some type, we probably wouldn't be where we are now. But there wasn't, and we are. The priests in those days had not made themselves accountable to each other, to the people, to the king, and most importantly, to God. They had not made themselves accountable to God, but they were still accountable to God. You always are. For any, here's a good, this is a kingdom truth. Because everything belongs to God, then you're accountable for everything. How's that? For what you do with everything you have, you're accountable. So their responsibility was taken away from them. They were no longer allowed to collect money from their acquaintances. But the people instead would bring their offerings to the house of the Lord, and those offerings would be put into a chest through a hole that was bored in the top of it. And now that there was so much money in the chest, it had to be bagged. It had to be taken out so more could be put in the chest, presumably. And when that money was taken out, it was reckoned. It was told. Now, having two or more witnesses count the money like we did here, because the text says that the king's scribe and the high priest came up, And they put in bags and told the money. They reckoned the money. Having two or more witnesses count money is an application of a larger command. And that larger command that's given both in the Old and the New Testament is in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. We spoke about that some last week. And that large command is supposed to keep a person from being condemned by the testimony of only one witness. And when there are two witnesses or more counting money, the probability of a theft is almost zero. It's not zero because man is sinful. And sometimes you have two or three people counting money, all of whom have agreed to steal the money, but that's the exception rather than the rule. 
In your average bank drawer theft or convenience store theft from a cash drawer, your average what's called in retail shrinkage, that just means theft, all of that double accountability would be a wise standard to implement. It's usually there, it's just not followed. And it prevents a lot of problems. Now, while double accountability <clears throat> should prevent theft, it doesn't work when both the people doing the counting have determined to commit a theft. In Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, it says, But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? So Ananias and Sapphira were trying to do like all these other people were doing. They saw that people would bring would sell land and bring money, and of course there was the recognition that went with that. And they were greedy for attention, and they were greedy for money. So to get attention, they sold a land, but because of their greed, they only brought part of the price. Now both of them counted the money, because when you read the next passage in that same chapter, chapter 5, you'll see that Ananias' wife did the same thing. She lied about how much the land was sold for. They both knew, they both had counted, but they were both dishonest counters. And the Bible tells us they paid with their lives. Ananias and Sapphira remind me of Adam and Eve, in a way. In Adam and Eve's case, if just one of them would have made the right decision, perhaps both of them would not have fallen. We don't know. Ananias and Sapphira both counted the money, and they both knew what the real tally was. <clears throat> and had just one of them said, hey, wait a minute. You said something about keeping a part of that. This is, this is God's money. We pledge this to the Lord. We're not doing that. We'll do that with Christmas presents, but we're not doing that with something that's been sanctified to the Lord. But what they didn't count on is that God had already counted the money. And, in fact, he knew the, the amount they would sell it for before they ever sold it. And by God's Spirit, Peter knew that God's count was different than Ananias and Sapphira's count. Now, this wasn't a miscount on their part. They knew exactly how much they had. It was a misapplication of those funds. This money belonged to God, and they held back a part of it. Now, in our text here in 2 Kings chapter 12, I want you to notice who was there to count the money. Look back in verse 10 in the middle. It says, The king's scribe and the high priest came up, and they 
put up in bags. In other words, they took the money from the chest and they put it up in the bags. They knew how much was there. There were at least two people counting, counting this money. That's a wise move, especially considering the scandal that brought them to this new way of accounting. The money found in the house of the Lord is sacred because it's given to the Lord's work. We don't just take up a collection down here. We don't just haul a bunch of money to the bank and throw it in there. This is the Lord's money. So whatever you're giving, it's for the work of the Lord. And then the responsibility is on the church leadership to make sure that it's spent that way. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, we find an example of two priests who did not find the Lord's offering sacred. It says, now the sons of Eli, now he was the high priest, the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. So right there we see that they're lost. They're unbelievers. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand. And he struck it into the pan, or kettle, or cauldron, or pot. All that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. Also, before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest. For he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. And if any man said unto him, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desireth, then he would answer him, Nay, but thou shalt give it me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. And that word abhorred is despised. Now isn't that something? Eli, who was a righteous man, he was a righteous priest, but boy, he didn't make his son's mind at all. He let them do what they wanted in the house of the Lord. He knew they were wicked. It would have been better for him to have taken them out and had them stoned than to let them continue to do what they were doing to the people of Israel. So what the people were doing is bringing their offerings in the form of, of meat. And rather than those priests saying, all right, let's look back in the law and let's see which part of the offering belongs to the priest because there are parts that belong to the priest. All right, well, that's ours. Now the rest of that, that's sacrifice to the Lord. No, they came up with their own system. They decided to put a three-pronged hook in there and grab at that meat, and then whatever came up on there belonged to them. That's not how the Lord told the priest to do that in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. 
But because these two priests were lost, they're unbelievers, nothing they did ought to surprise us. They were not only, they not only abhorred or despised the offerings of the Lord, they also despised the people. Now we don't know what happened to the original money given to the priests in our texts. That is the money they had collected from their acquaintances because we're not specifically told. But whether that money was spent on their own pleasures or simply left in a corner somewhere, those priests abhorred the Lord's offering. They despised it. Because had they not despised it, they would have done what they were commanded to do. Repair the breaches of the house of the Lord. Whatever the purpose was for which they used it, they did not use it for a sacred purpose. And it was offered by the people. And now that lost integrity that the priests have demonstrated has been met with financial countermeasures. A new way of accounting. Verse 11 So now the high priest and the scribe have counted the money. It's bagged up. And it says in verse 11, And they gave the money, being told, means being reckoned or numbered, into the hands of them that did the work, that had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And they laid it out to the carpenters and builders that wrought upon the house of the Lord. That's a novel idea, isn't it? Give the money that was given for the work to the ones who actually are doing the work. Now there's a phrase there that says that had the oversight of the house of the Lord. So among those workers, there were supervisors. There have to be. Somebody has to direct what everybody's doing and make sure you don't have everyone working on the same thing at one time. Make sure that when these people are taking a break, these are still working. And there's all sorts of logistics that go along with being a supervisor. Now, what being a supervisor doesn't mean is sitting back with your feet up on your desk, watching everyone else do the work. That is not a supervisor. And so that had oversight means those who oversaw the work. So the money went from the people into the locked chest, was removed and counted by at least two people, and then it was given into the hands of the supervisors of these workers so they could pay the workers. Now, this arrangement puts a tremendous responsibility onto the overseers. Two things. Number one, with that money, they better buy only what is required No side purchases, no stealing, no dipping into the till and taking some for their own. And number two, they better pay their workers what's owed to them. This brings to mind one of the most common and frustrating kinds of theft in our society, and you might have been a victim of it in one way or another. Here's how it goes. A man wants his fence replaced, so he has a fence contractor come to his house and size up the job and make an estimate. 
and the contractor tells the customer, now I'm going to need 50% of the money in advance because I've got to purchase concrete and poles and rails, pickets and hardware and all of the things that go along with building fence. And so the customer writes a check and says, all right, well, here you go. Let's begin. And the contractor leaves with the check. Days go by, and the contractor can't seem to find the customer's phone number anymore, nor remember his address. And those days turn into weeks until it becomes obvious the contractor's not coming back. He's just stolen the customer's money, which was given to him on the promise of buying what was needful for the job. That's why the customer gave the money, not so the contractor could run off with it. So that address is the first thing that has to happen, is, and we'll see it in verse 12, is that you've got to use the money to buy the things that are needful for the job. Now this is really simple, isn't it? Why is it so hard? A second example would be of that general contractor who promises to pay a framing carpenter to frame a house. They're building a new house. And the framing carpenter's job is to get that frame ready to go so all of the other things can be attached to it. And the contractor has access to the home builder's account, which has plenty of money in it to pay the carpenter and to buy supplies and all of that. But the contractor's been taking money out of that home builder's account and spending it at the casino, promising to replenish it later on. Well, then payday comes, and the framing carpenter's finished with his job, and he says, I need my money. And so the contractor says, well, I can't pay you till I get paid. That contractor has just stolen the carpenter's money. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 13. Leviticus 19, 13 taught the children of Israel, and therefore us, how to deal honestly with your employees or with somebody you hire to do a job for you. And it says, Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. Now listen to this. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. That means you don't delay paying someone whenever you owe them money for a job. You pay them when it's due. I get paid once every two weeks. And if I open my bank account on a Friday morning on payday and there's no money from my county in there, I'm not going to be happy. And if I call and they say, well, this week we're, we're not going to pay till Saturday. Well, what they've done is they've, my wages have abided with them all night until the morning. And that's not right. The Bible says don't do that. Now, the overseers of the work being done in the house of the Lord better use the money for the purpose for which it was given, and as we'll see, to buy the correct materials and to pay the ones who did the work. How hard is that? All that takes is integrity. It doesn't take any special skill to do. And notice the phrase in verse 11 there at the very end, that wrought, that wrought. 
In other words, it says, and they laid it out, that's the money, to the carpenters and builders that wrought upon the house of the Lord. That wrought. That means that worked. So you pay the people who do the work. Now that's pretty simple too, isn't it? And by implication, you don't pay the people who didn't do the work. In fact, they shouldn't be paid and they shouldn't expect to be paid. Now in our country and in many other countries, sadly enough, it seems that people want to be paid to rest. But they haven't worked first. Before you can rest from anything, you have to work first. In music, we have a whole bunch of little squiggly lines in there, don't we? And dots and things that tell us what to do and when to do it and how long to do it for and how loud to do it. And the better you get in music, the more refined your abilities are. But one of the notes in, or one of the notations on a musical staff is a rest. And that means if that's your staff, don't do anything right there. Either don't play or don't sing. Only for a second and then you resume. Now, what if the whole thing was a rest? Well, we just never would sing, would we? It's not really a rest. We just didn't do anything. So to get a rest in music, you probably either need to sing before it or after it. Now, God established the principle of rest and work for us. And he did it way back in Genesis chapter 2 in the creation. Listen to what chapter, Genesis chapter 2 verse 2 says. Listen to the order. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. God worked, he ended his work, and rested from his work. But it began with work, not rest. Now, how would that have looked on the first day? God rested. From what? He put the rest at the end of the work, not at the beginning, because it's not rest if it's at the beginning. It began with work. It didn't begin with rest. And you can't, you can't end what you don't start. The Bible said God ended his work that he had made. So it's important to know in our scripture, the people who were paid were the ones who wrought the ones who worked. Now for us to expect payment when we don't work is a theft. Just as much of a theft as those priests who took that money and didn't do what they were supposed to. An able-bodied person, that's the key right there, an able-bodied person who refuses to work but who is content to receive money from my taxes is a thief. That's as nice as I'm going to put it. And yes, there's Bible for it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Listen how the Apostle Paul puts it. And he's speaking to the church. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let him that stole steal no more. So that's the first phrase. But rather, there's your contrast, let him labor. 
let him work. So what did the priests do at first? They didn't labor. So how did they get the money? They stole it. The people brought it and said, this is for the repair of the breaches of the house. And the priest said, okay. And they didn't use it for that. They stole it. Now you might say, well, their acquaintances gave it to them. At first, the most devious forms of theft involve convincing a person to let you have some of your money and to promise them you're going to do great things with it and then to run off with it. Ask some of the victims of Enron, Bernie Madoff. He ruined a lot of hard-working retirees' lives. Their money just went poof. It vanished with him. The text that I read you in Ephesians makes it clear that working and stealing are the opposite. Because it says, but rather... So if working with the hands is the thing which is good, which is right, then receiving the money without working with the hands is stealing. That's easy. I love how simple the Bible is. Sometimes we have to wade through the weeds to arrive at truths in the Bible. They're down in there. We've got to peel the onion back a little bit and slow down. Sometimes it slaps us in the face, doesn't it? Like this. I've paid into Social Security since I was 15 years old and had my first official job. No, I didn't start working when I was 15. I started working as soon as I could stand up. Well, that's the way I feel about it. And when I arrive at the age of 62 or whatever age I decide, I plan to draw that Social Security every month for the rest of my life. That's money I worked for. That's not a handout. That's my money. If I would have been able to keep it and do what I wanted with it, there'd be a lot more of it than what the government does with it. But it's not theft for me to receive that money. I'm entitled to it. And I'm going to do the same thing with my retirement and my personal investments. I earned every cent of the money that I put in there from my check. And I expect to receive not only what I put in there, but also every cent that those investments earned at the time I draw out the money. And at that time, I will be able to rest from my labors. These are physical, earthly labors. Doesn't mean I'll stop working, but at some point, I've got to retire from my job. It's not made for old men. Not really. And I'm pushing the envelope as it is. But I'll be able to rest from my labors because I first labored. Now, what if at the age of 15, when I got my first job, I said, you know what I think I want to do? I want to retire first. I want to start drawing retirement, and then later on, I'll go to work. Why, the Social Security Administration and the retirement, the, the company's retirement administrator and the banks and everyone else would laugh at me. They'd say... Son, you don't have any money. You can't retire. You have to do your work first. Brother Fulton and I were sharing about our Wednesday night service this week, and I was thrilled to hear that a couple of people asked him about setting up a Roth IRA. 
And you know, if God's people really got a hold of biblical counseling in the area of working, resting, investing, saving, and giving, it would be rare for any of us to get ourselves into financial trouble. It would be rare. There'd have to be some sort of catastrophe. But even then, a person would have the right mindset. I remember, oh, 15, 20 years ago, Rush Limbaugh said that in his opinion, if the government took all of the money, took everyone's money, rich, poor, and in between, and then handed out that money evenly, that after a while, the same people who had most of the money before would have most of the money again because they would have the same wisdom, the same restraint in spending, and all of that. And the ones who just blew their money would blow their money again. And they would end up working for those who had the money. Now, these priests had, an, had a great opportunity to be examples of financial fidelity to the children of Israel. They could have showed them this is how this is done. This is how we manage our money. This is how we manage your money. And we do it faithfully. And so should you. But they failed. Verse 12 continues from the sentence in verse 11. And to masons and hewers of stone. Now that means... Money was given to them just like it was the carpenters and builders in verse 11. And to masons and to hewers of stone and to buy timber and hewed stone to repair the breaches of the house of the Lord and for all that was laid out for the house to repair it. So along with the carpenters and the builders, these masons and these hewers of stone show us just how extensive these repairs must have been. Now, we've already studied the word breaches, which let us know there wasn't just one, breaches. But the variety of the skilled laborers here tells us there were many kinds of breaches, not just a lot of them. Breaches in wood, breaches in stone, breaches in whatever other parts of the house of the Lord there were. So the priests had let everything go downhill, didn't they? They didn't say, well, we've tried to keep up with the stonework and the masonry and all that, but the, the carpentry, we're, we're stumped. We don't know what to do. And we kind of let that go. No, it was everything. And the text tells us that this money was given to repair the breaches of the house of the Lord and for all that was laid out for the house to repair it. Now, the word repair has been seen twice in verse 12 already. So not forgetting the specific purpose of the money <clears throat> and the reason why these masons and builders and carpenters and hewers of stone were there, it was to repair the breaches. It was not to buy new furniture. It wasn't to buy new garments for the priests or other luxuries. You know, this is the time of year when people make all sorts of uh, goals, 
resolutions and so forth. And some of those are, are fitness goals. And the, the thing that needs to be repaired is the person's lack of fitness. They say, you know, I, I want to be able to walk a mile without having to sit down. Or I want to be able to, to do 50 push-ups. Or I want to be able to hang from a bar from one minute or start lifting weights or whatever it is. And so you know what many of them start doing? They go out and they buy a brand new pair of sweats and a brand new pair of tennis shoes and a Walkman, or that dates me, doesn't it? Some earbuds and a new Fitbit and all of that. And they never do start working out. What needed to be done was the lack of inactivity needed to be changed. So these priests... In all of this newfound repairing of the house of the Lord, they weren't to go buy a bunch of new stuff. They needed to fix what needs fixing. And I love that saying. Fix what needs fixing. It'll save you a lot of money, by the way, too. Now, we, we don't know <clears throat> that the priests did or didn't use that money that they received previously for expensive items that had nothing to do with repairing the house of the Lord, but I figure they probably did. Fix what needs fixing. It keeps the focus on the fixing, not on buying a bunch of new stuff, while the broken stuff never gets fixed, because that's what happens. To these stiff-necked children of Israel, the prophet Haggai, Haggai, in chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, Haggai chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, said this. Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses? That means houses that have ceilings. And this house, talking about the house of the Lord, lie waste. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Ye have sown much. And you bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put into a bag with holes. That's, we call that a credit card. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood. And build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. What God was telling them is that all the things they'd gained... Their food and clothing, drink, even their money were not bringing any satisfaction to them. No matter how much they got, it didn't satisfy them. Their harvest was little. Their finances. And he said the reason for all this is that you've not taken pleasure in maintaining the house of the Lord. And maintaining the physical house of the Lord is more than just repairing actual breaches in the wall. We've talked about that. 
It has to do with everything that goes on in the house of the Lord. So, friend, does it seem like you're never satisfied with what you have, with what you make? You need fixing. You don't need new stuff. You need fixing. If you're not saved, you need saving. If you're saved and not walking upright before the Lord, like the children of Israel, then you need to do what the prophet told Israel. Go to the mountain, get wood, and come down and repair my house. Now, that's a metaphor for you. There's a wonderful hymn called Little is Much When God is in It. The opposite, opposite of that is also true. Much is little when God is not in it, no matter how much you have. And if the house of the Lord is not important to the people and to their religious leaders, then what they have in their own houses will never satisfy them. It doesn't matter how much you have. John DuPont was one of the richest men who ever lived. And in his last days, he was driving his tractor around this huge property he had. And he was armed. He didn't want anybody to get on his property. Now, all the land and all the money and all the houses and servants and everything else he had, he still wasn't satisfied. Most people are not satisfied. Very few people, including Christians, are satisfied and content. But you know, there's no reason for you to stay that way. Get your eyes off of your house and put it on the Lord's house. Because this is where truth is taught. This is where the right kind of people love you the right kind of way. And when your eyes are on the Lord's house and all that goes on in here, then your own house will seem more satisfying to you. You won't be so disgruntled and discontent. Fix what needs fixing. Bible study. You're not doing it? Then do it. Prayer, singing songs of praise, not just when you're here. Encouraging others, telling others about the gospel. Don't get a bunch of new stuff. You don't need new stuff. You don't need a new church. Don't say, well, you know what? I think things would be better if I went over here to first whatchamacallit or second so-and-so church because they have some really exciting things. They've got a light show during their worship service, and they play. They've got a band, and their preacher's really exciting, and he runs around, and he didn't even have to wear a tie. You know, all that, that's not what you need. You don't need a new house or a new car or a new spouse. Those things won't satisfy you as much as fixing what needs fixing. In verse 13, how be it, there were not made for the house of the Lord bowls of silver, snuffers, basins, trumpets, any vessels of gold or vessels of silver of the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. Now, what did I just say a minute ago? It's just because the Bible bears it out. How God knows the hearts of the people. 
He said, fix this place. Don't buy new dishes. Don't buy new instruments. That's not what the money's for. Bowls of silver and snuffers, that's what they put out the candles with. Basins, big wash bowls, trumpets, vessels of gold and silver. What do we know about gold and silver, even brass? You can clean it, can't you? Might take a little more elbow grease, the worse you let it get. But particularly gold and silver, those are elements. You can clean them. There's no reason that they should have to be repaired or replaced. Those items should have already been in the house of the Lord, and they should have been kept clean. And if they're not clean, what does that mean these priests have to do? They've got to go to work, don't they? They've got to put in some manual labor to make their end of this place look like it's supposed to. Verse 14 but they gave that, that's money, to the workmen and repaired therewith the house of the Lord. So the money was given to the workmen, not the salesmen. That's a good one for you to hang on to. Don't give money to the salesman. Give it to the workmen. And if you're able, you be the workman. It'll save you from the salesman. Verse 15, Moreover, they reckon not with the men into whose hand they delivered the money to be bestowed on the workmen, for they dealt faithfully. Boy, this is a good lesson. The priest couldn't be trusted. They had to reckon the money. But who was it who did not have to reckon the money? It was these overseers. And it was because they dealt faithfully. They were honest Construction supervisors. And you know what? There are some out there. There are some honest construction supervisors. And I'm thankful for that. They paid the workers what they were supposed to pay them and when they were supposed to pay them. And that's the kind of testimony every Christian ought to have. Especially if in your business you pay people or you're responsible for getting them paid. I remember a missionary wanting support from a church where I was a member about 25 years ago. And he had a beautiful singing voice. And we had a missions conference every year, and after one of the missions conferences, we took the missionaries and their families to eat at a restaurant. And this missionary found out I was a law enforcement officer. And so he got around to the subject of traffic tickets, and he said he thinks he might have a warrant out for an unpaid traffic ticket. Well, I called my dispatcher and found out that this preacher, this missionary candidate, was wanted for a traffic ticket that he didn't pay. He hadn't paid his ticket, and he hadn't answered the letter that the justice court sent out reminding him, sir, you are wanted. That missionary candidate had not dealt faithfully. And I met with our pastor later on and said, I cannot recommend this man to represent this church or the kingdom of God on a foreign field when he is such an unfaithful steward with his money. 
Every Christian ought to deal faithfully with money, but especially those in positions of leadership. It is a requirement. And I'll close with this verse that tells us it is a requirement. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 2, where the Apostle Paul wrote, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Faithful with God's money, God's word, God's house, and God's people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word today, how the truth just stands out there for us to embrace, to follow, to believe, or to disobey. And Lord, I pray that if any listening now or who will listen later have been found in disobedience in the areas that were taught on today, that there would be repentance And that they would do it the right way. They'd fix what needs fixing. Now, Father, as we go into our next hour, I pray that each one here would be just as hungry for truth as we were this morning. That we would embrace it. And, Lord, that we would allow all those cares and distractions that we may have brought in here to just flee our minds so that we may attend wholly upon your word. In Jesus' name, amen.